In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I'm Eliza Barkley, Vox's science, health, and climate editor. This April, our podcasts are teaming up to cover some of the most important issues threatening life on Earth. From sustainability to biodiversity to straight-up cool things about the natural world, we'll focus on our planet and its limits in episodes throughout the month. Tune in to Today Explained, Fox Conversations, The Weeds, Unexplainable, Worldly, Future Perfect, and Vox Quick Hits. Want to listen to all the shows? Find them at vox.com slash earthmonth. on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Eric Goldwyn, is an assistant professor at NYU's Marin School of uh, Urban Management, and he's been working on a project on mass transit construction costs, which uh, I think is what we're going to talk about here, try to give people something a little bit a little bit different uh, in Vox Media's Earth Week uh, sort of paradigm here. So, hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, just as like background in case people have never seen me rant about this on on twitter um the, the basic thing here that we are talking about is that um the construction of mass transit projects in the united states uh is is very expensive in international terms right in a way that seems a little bit anomalous and maybe not that well understood by anyone that's that's exactly right um i just was like looking through the data a couple of days ago and and one of the things that was most striking is that so America in our database, we have like 600 projects in almost 60 countries. And America is the sixth most expensive country uh, to build mass transit. But what's interesting about that is that the five countries ahead of the United States, they're building projects where 80% of the projects are in tunnels. And in America, only 37% of the projects are in tunnels. So the point being right is that building tunnels is really expensive. That's true. But we're also not building as many tunnels, but still extremely expensive. I, 
and you know, I mean, this is a little, I think, contrary to most people's sort of impression. I mean, you know, people know that American cities do not have like the best mass transit in the world, generally speaking. Um, and I think most people, you know, liberal people at least, guess about that is that it's what well, we are appropriating very small amounts of money. And that must be why uh, we can't, you know, build a, a glorious uh, subway system for every city that we have. And it that just seems to not really be the case, that we've actually spent a fair amount of money on new transit projects. The, the cash just doesn't go that far. Yeah. So I think one of the things that we saw happen with sort of transportation bills, you know, going back to like Ice-T, if that is meaningful to, to the listeners, I'm um, talking about like the 90s, is that there was sort of, at least according to, you know, older people than I am, there was sort of a, a, a bargain made between sort of the highway lobby and the transit lobby that was like, okay, we'll support transit getting money as long as you don't sort of oppose the highway lobby getting money. And so transit, as, as you note, has gotten a bunch of money. And that seems to continue to be sort of the deal is that we do funnel money into transit, but we're also funneling a bunch of money into roads. And like these things work at cross purposes, right? If you have, you know, not not necessarily free flowing, but if you have like abundant roads and you're constantly widening them and expanding them, but also building transit, you're not really solving any problems. You're just sort of saying, you know, this is an all you can eat buffet on one side, and then this is one entree on the other side. And so people go for the, you know, um, all you can eat unlimited. And so I ice tea, for those who do not know, this was the Intermodal Surface Transportation Efficiency Act of 1991. Yep. Um, so this is uh, the, the way Congress works, in case people don't know, is that there are certain bills. This is the, the surface transportation authorizing vehicle. And Congress passes a new one of these every few years. They, they expire. You sometimes get extended of them. Um, so for a while, they had these kind of cool, uh, they would always end in T. So there was I-S-T-E-A, Ice-T, and then there was Safety Lou um, and, and some other ones. The most recent one is called the FAST Act. Yeah. Um, but, but what they all have is this kind of fixed ratio of uh, basically highway to transit spending in which most of the money goes to highways, but a lot goes to transit. As long as you keep building lots and lots of roads everywhere. Like this is a rich country in which mm -hmm. most people, the vast majority of people can afford cars. And in New York City and a few other places, there's like good reason to ride mass transit anyway, because there's no place to park. But most of the country isn't really like that. You can sort of string light rail lines here and there. But like if you're widening highways every place, people keep driving. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, I mean, if you if you care, I think, really about transit usage, you have to think not just in terms of like, what are the dollars spent on the project, but what is like what's happening? Yeah, I think that's the thing about transportation that is, you know, either vexing or very interesting, depending on your point of view. But like, there just isn't one lever you pull and it's like, okay, solved. It's like, like with everything else in the world, there are like lots of things that are interconnected. And so if you just make one change, it's not going to solve all the other problems. Um, so if you want to get more people onto transit, right, you have to do stuff about driving and roads and, you know, so on and so forth, uh, in addition to getting costs under control. So you can build stuff. But yeah, but I mean, let's let's talk about costs because, I mean, you can get sort of sucked into a 
kind of pointless debate about like do quote unquote like we need mass transit but clearly in parts of the country mass transit is very very relevant to help people get around um so in in new york where where you live uh, where where i grew up you know they built a new subway up part of second avenue Mm -hmm. um that's clearly something like people do use people people need the subway in in new york uh the upper east side was not very well served by transit until that was built. They were above capacity elsewhere. And so like, it's a no brainer to dig that tunnel, but it costs like crazy sums of money. Crazy sums of money. About four and a half billion dollars, not including the financing charge, which is like another $800 million. And, and I mean, what, what happens when, when costs get that high? So in order to get to that sort of scale, I mean, the thing, the big thing, and you know, we've talked about this in, in other venues is sort of stations are a big part of that story. Um, so I don't know, Matt, if you've checked out the Second Avenue subway in your return trips to New York. I sort of assume you have, but uh, I, yeah, I I've I've been there. Yeah, and you know the stations are essentially underground cathedrals. You know they're they're massive, and the art the frescoes are amazing, uh, <laughs> you know, so to speak. And uh, they they cost a lot of money. I, so I mean, if you looked at sort of the the, the budget of Second Avenue subway, sort of at a 10,000 foot view, it's about four and a half billion dollars, but then three and change is going to be for hard construction costs. Mm -hmm. And then about two billion of that is probably in the stations. So that's sort of the big driver of costs. Like a lot of people focus on the tunneling and saying, okay, that's, you know, unions, sand hogs, people like to complain about that. Um, But the tunneling contract is about $350 million, maybe a little bit more um, with some added added stuff but the stations is where you you see a lot of of the costs and you know it's the time of labor absolutely it's takes a lot of time to dig and blow up stuff and then it's all the amenities that get added on and you know a thing that i've been looking at pretty closely recently is all these ancillary buildings which is where you put the ventilation structures um and they're just I've not seen anything comparable anywhere else in the world. I've been told that there are some decent comparisons in London, but uh, I'm not. I'm not convinced yet uh, that that's the case. I mean, I think this 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 point just on the stations is is important because um, well because people like to talk about Elon Musk and mm-hmm. you know he has a company whose whole premise is that he's going to dig like better tunnels, right and. I mean, that's great. I mean, it, like it is, it's good to innovate. It's good to make things, things better. But it's also, it's important to understand like what are the actual pain points and yeah. like the existing tunnel boring machine. It's like this like giant drill, right? And it, it goes to the, and they're fine. I mean, like it could be better. But like that's that's not why this costs so much money. Right, I, just to interrupt, I, to any of your listeners, just Google tunnel boring machine, uh, YouTube it, look up earth pressure balance machine, whatever it is. Just watch some of these videos. It's insane. They're amazing. The technology is incredible. Like, I mean, sure, innovation, I'm sure it could be better, but it's like so mechanized. It, it requires very few people to actually like you know, sort of ferry the, the 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 boring machine. And then like it automatically sort of lines the tunnel magically and it like removes the spoil. That's the earth that it's excavating or the rock that it's excavating. It's like really high tech. It's, you know, right. it's not it's not where we're sort of struggling, I would I would say. Yeah, right. I mean that that's the thing is then the the cost of that project, a very outside share of it, is creating these stations because you can't you can't drill a station. Right. Um, the little Elon Musk tunnels um 
they're like they're just tubes, right? So the question is like, well, what like what's this for? Like, like if, I don't know that we could walk side by side with our arms extended. You right. know? Uh. So some of that is is technical, right? But the sort of policy question, I guess, to ask about the Second Avenue project is like, why did they make the station so big, right? Like if right. somebody tells you, okay, a problem here is that it's expensive to dig out space for stations. Like the Elon Musk solution, like don't bother. Like right. that doesn't quite work because <laughs> right. like you need, you need a station, right? But you would think like common sense is just like, well, okay, try to make it as small as you can get away with. Right. Well, so, so the thing is there are reasonable explanations for why this line of subway extension would be more expensive than the average in the country or the world and that it would be one of the most expensive in the world for, you know, existing density in New York. Sure. It's, it's a legitimate constraint. The other thing is the train sets in New York are actually just much longer than most other transits in the rest of the world, right? So like New York might have eight to 10 cars. So the platforms are going to be 615. Uh, well, let's just say 600 feet long, not to get too precise. And that's a lot longer than say train sets in Copenhagen or in Paris or in London. And so that means you do have to have a very long station box. And the other piece of that is that it means that the capacity on those trains is also going to be theoretically much higher than on other trains. And so from a fire safety point of view, you need to be able to sort of account for, okay, how do I safely get 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 people out of the station safely and suppress a potential fire? And so like those things are sort of, those are the laws. It's like, uh, I mean, not the like legal laws, but the sort of like the physical laws of of the system that you can't really uh, mess around with. But there are things about, you know, construction techniques and ways to, you know, make this process happen more quickly that, you know, we could look at um, to sort of move things along. Because that, that's the other part of it, right? Is like the longer these projects take, it's just like the more money you're sort of funneling into contractors, labor, you know, all these, you know, renting equipment, all that stuff is just expensive. Um, so if we could move more quickly, that would help um, reduce costs. And I don't mean on the planning side. I mean, that's in a whole other place where we should also make, move more quickly. I mean, purely on, we've agreed on the project, we've allocated the money, and we've started construction. Like, the timeline shouldn't still take, you know, 10 years to to build, you know, two, two miles of subway tunnels or whatever. Right. You're talking about this just sort of actual execution. Yes, just the construction, like not the planning. Like that's another stick, you know, can of worms to talk <laughs> about, but like just the construction. Yeah. So we should back up here though. Like uh, let's sure. um let's talk about like how, how did you get involved with, with this question of of transit construction costs? Like what's the what's what's the genesis of this dialogue? How, how far back are we going here? Let's go all the way. We're going back to the all we're the going back. back to the beginnings of time because this is I, I like this issue, but it's not it's not really like ripe in DC yet. Right. Well, I think, you know, Matt, the one of the main things that we share, right, is that we're from New York and mm-hmm. um, you know, have been I assume, riding public transit for a long time and sort of understand that, I mean, I'm someone who still doesn't really drive, that without a subway or a bus, like, life is pretty bad. (laughs) Um, Like, when I travel around the country, I feel like a child. So, like, that's what got me a lot down this path. And then, obviously, you know, I was very excited about uh, the Second Avenue subway when it was announced, and I, f- I followed the project, you know, here and there, and I went to opening day, of course, and then obviously Alan, who I work with, 
has been sort of banging this drum for, I think, more than 10 years now. And so we started working together on something a little bit different related to buses, which was something that I had been working on. But when we started working together, we were talking about construction costs. And it was always our plan to sort of focus our energy on this topic because one, as you know, it, it's just a very important topic, you know, not just for New York, but for other places that want to build subway. And, and those places are growing cities like Seattle, you know, Los Angeles, like all these, you know, San Francisco, they're, they're also trying to build subway, Dallas. And so if, if we want to actually be able to build at a scale, which could actually attract people out of cars, you just need to build a lot more than we're building. And so that's been sort of like what motivated us all along. I think one of the things that we were concerned about when we started this research was that people would sort of view us as saying, it's so expensive, let's not build any transit. That's not our point of view. Our point of view is it's so expensive, let's figure out how to make it cheaper and then build a whole bunch of transit. No, and I, I think that that's an important point, right? Because if you don't look in a comparative context, right, if you just look at what is the cost benefit of like the LA Metro as it exists, like it's true, it's it doesn't look that good. And then the question is, is, well, okay, is that a fact about mass transit? Like, it's just so expensive and it doesn't work. And then you look at other places and you say, no, like, well, they have a subway in Milan. They have a subway in Madrid. They mm -hmm. build tunnels in Berlin and in, in Seoul. Right. Like, it, it doesn't have to cost that much. Yes, that, that that's that's right. And like, part of the differences in those places, because for our work, yeah, we, we do take this comparative look. And we're currently working on three cases right now. And two of them are international and are trying to sort of get at, okay, well, what are they doing differently? And so we're, we're looking at Northern Italy and we're looking at uh, Istanbul and Turkey. And part of it absolutely is sort of that planning process in the, you know, in the beginning and sort of dealing with, you know, people complaining, you know, lawsuits, but just also like having a long-term plan for, okay, we're going to, we're going to build a hundred miles of subway. We might not have the money right now, but once we get the money, like these projects are all approved and we'll just like move forward with construction where in New York it's, or in America, I should say, um, it's a much more ad hoc process where it's like, we don't have any money to build this stuff. Like, how do we get the money? That's like the first thing you have to answer. And so like a lot of places will do a sales tax or will do bonding or, you know, something like that. No city is like actually putting up the cash uh, to do this stuff or no state or very few states are willing to put up the cash uh, to put to do these things. Uh, and then it's like, okay, we apply for money from the federal government. And if we get that, then we can sort of like move forward with this process. And it's just sort of like, yeah, you, you have to jump through a couple hoops. And it's like, you can't really plan around sort of so many unknowns. If you have a process with 100 different veto points, and there's a 1% likelihood of them being enacted, you're never going to build any project, because eventually, you know, someone will say no for lack of a, a better analogy. Um, and that's sort of like the place that we're at in the States. But so can you give us some just like, like broad facts, like how, how, how high are the costs in the United States compared to, you know, some other reasonable kind of comparison country? Yes. So, well, um, I think the, the most important thing, if we are talking about the tunnels, right? Mm -hmm. So in, according to our data, looking at a country like Spain or South Korea, um, they can build at essentially, you know, a tenth of the price of of what New York is building at. Just, you know, that's, the, I mean, that's like the, the the big wow number, sort of, that they can just do so much more with each dollar than, than, than what we can do. And the thing is, costs in New York are uniquely high, right? Like, so we did a case in, in Boston on 
a light rail, so sort of a different beast. And that project was about $300 million. I think we do everything kilometers per kilometer, um, while Second Avenue Subway is like $2 billion a kilometer. So, you know, they're, they're different beasts. But, you know, the, the the project in Boston is at grade versus tunneled. And as I was saying earlier, tunnels are really, that's that's what gets you. And so, yeah, you know, projects in some of the Nordic countries, also very cheap. Sweden, uh, Stockholm, uh, Switzerland is, is cheap. And these places can build at, you know, 200 $300 million a kilometer um, or well, $300 million a mile. The, that was the wow moment, I think. It's just sort of like these. some of these places maybe have some labor cost differences that you know you need to account for. And we, we do adjust for those things. But you, know, you can't really argue that the Nordic countries are, you know, it's like a cheaper place to do business necessarily, or that like they don't have protections for workers or, you know, so on and so forth. And I think that when we started to see countries that were sort of with had equal sort of GDPs per capita, you know, were very close or even higher in some cases, but had much lower costs, it was kind of like, huh, there's like an interesting story that must be that we must be able to tell. And it's interesting, right? Because it's not I wouldn't say it's all you could deduce from first principles, right? Because you might think, oh, well, you know, it's it's cheap labor. But no, like Sweden, right. you I guess like you have to do the work, right? And actually just look up the facts. Yeah. And, I, you know, a, a big part of it, right, is sort of just building stuff and like continuously building stuff and like worrying about costs and like trying to figure out how to do things better. You know, the story of, of Madrid which is sort of one of the, the the big success stories in the in in sort of our story at least, is that they you know really tried to figure out what to do and uh, you know they really studied their geology and they like looked at different construction techniques and were like you know mining stuff and tunnel bore you know like these things are maybe too are a bit more expensive than if we did cut and cover stations um, and like there are there there. Are, are differences around, you know, around the world. And, you know, geology is a part of the story. Like the Netherlands has challenging geology. You know, some of the projects in China have challenging geology. Um, you know, these things just add costs and there's nothing you can really do about it. It's just, it's going to be more expensive than where you had, you know, really good conditions. Because like in Amsterdam, they're, what, they're underwater? It's yeah, exactly. To, it's hard to tunnel there. Alluvial soil, I think, is the, <laughs> is the term. Oh, there we go. That's, 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 that's the real weed stuff. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's take a break, and then I, I want to talk about Boston. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, 
more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Okay, so what, one of the things you've done is this sort of detailed look at one particular project in, in Boston, which is interesting because essentially it almost got canceled because it was going to be too expensive and they sort of rebooted it to, to make it cheaper. Uh, can, you, can you explain to me like what, what, what was this, uh, the, this project that they did? Right. So in, in Boston, they were extending the Green Line, which is an existing route in their system. It's a project that sort of was born out of the big dig. If people don't know, that was like a big highway project from you know the 90s. It was agreed on, I believe. And in the environmental mitigation from that project in 1991, I believe, Massachusetts agreed to 14 different transit improvements. And the argument was that it was to keep in accordance with the Clean Air Act because uh, Boston had fallen into um, violation of it at, at certain points, which risked getting funding from their, their federal funding. But if you talk to sort of the Secretary of Transportation at that time, Fred Savucci, I th- he's publicly stated that it really wasn't about that. It was more about they understood that if they built this highway, it would eventually get filled up with cars and you had to have some alternatives for people. So that's why he sort of authorized this decision. Now, 1991... And, the pro- you know, today we're in 2021, the project still is not complete, although we're getting close, it, it looks like. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a new governor, Bill Weld, comes into office and sort of is just not really interested in transit and doesn't fund the project. And so this is, the, the project is sort of like in this state of limbo for really until like Deval Patrick sort of really moves on it. I mean, Mitt Romney sort of is like, yeah, let's let's build this thing. And he has an advisor, Doug Foy, who used to work at that law firm, who's also apparently very big on transit. Um, so he's in his ear sort of encouraging this. And then when Patrick comes into office, you know, he does want to do it. And, you know, there's a congressman in uh, Somerville whose name I got wrong, uh, Capuano. Mike Capuano. Capuano. Mike Capuano. Yeah, yeah. And Mike Capuano, to his credit, really wonderful guy. Someone I I, I have spoken to a few times, really was a cheerleader for for the project. And even when things sort of went off the rails, you know, he helped bring it back on. But what happens, right? They agree to the project, they start the planning process. The project is meant to be longer than it currently is. It's supposed to go up a little bit farther north to the Mystic Valley Highway. And costs just continue like incrementally getting higher and higher than the cost estimates, right? So the initial estimate from like 2005, which is just a conceptual design, is, you know, in the order of five, six hundred million dollars. And then as the project looks like it actually might happen and they're going to apply for federal funding, the price tag is, you know, nine hundred million dollars, a billion dollars. We're in that zone. Uh, 1.12 billion dollars. And then it's, you know, 1.5. Then it's $2 billion. It gets approval for this federal grant at a budget of $1.992 billion. Uh, and the federal government is basically kicking in half of the costs. So, you know, on, on the one hand, right, it's if the federal government's going to give you a billion dollars, like you might as well figure out how to, how to get it. And so they're trying to essentially, the story goes, you know, dot every I and cross every T. And so they, they think that if they encourage more public participation, like that helps the project look better in the eyes of the assessors at the FTA and things of that sort. 
the, the big piece, the big change, though, is that the station design goes from essentially unadorned bus stops, you know, it's sort of just like a weather shelter to sort of full-on iconic sort of head houses, which is just like a building with elevators, escalators, you know, personnel rooms, really nice plantings on the outside, redoing the streets. And here I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to cut in because if, if, you're, if you're listening, you know, if, you, if you've not um, lived in, in the Boston area. What's what's striking about this is that the, the Green Line exists. It, it has existed for a long time. I think it's, yeah. in fact, the, the tunnel part of it, it's basically like a set of kind of like trolley lines uh, in some of the kind of fancy suburbs west of Boston. And then they converge and there's a tunnel under downtown Boston. And it's actually very funny if you're used to like normal subways because you're down in the station and there's these kind of tiny trolley cars there. Right. Um, but but the surface segments of it, which go to to nice parts of town, Brookline and stuff like that, it, it, this is not like, it's not like subpar neighborhoods. Um, but the stops are just like, they're bu- like bus stops, you know? Yeah. Some of them have some parking spaces. Uh, there's a roof so that you don't get rained on. But even in like, cold ass Boston, right. uh, you'll see people any morning like out there in their big coats, you know, shivering. And obviously in some sense, like you would like to have maybe a more fabulous station. Right. But the point is Boston's full of like narrow streets. It's like really bad traffic. It's hard to park. Um, so it's just like classic mass transit. Like this is a good way to get yes. downtown if you right. live near the station. Then the extension is going out to Cambridge and, and Somerville, yeah. um, which again, they're very um, dense. Somerville is actually one of the most densely populated yeah. uh, municipalities in, in America. So, you know, you walk to the station, you take a train downtown, like it would be very useful. But they went from, well, we should copy the stations we already have to like, we should build the most awesome stations <laughs> that we can dream up. Even though there was no, I don't want to say there's like nothing wrong with the existing stations, but like people use them, right? Yeah. Like it, it, it's not make or break in terms of, am I going to take this train to work? Right. I mean, I think one of my early on in the research, so like we started doing the research, like right in like the the grips of Corona. So we didn't get to, you know, go visit for for this part of the part of it. But there was a lot of like Google Street View sort of tourism. And if you go up and down Mass Ave in, in Boston, you look at the stations, it's quite literally like sort of a highway divider, like cinder block thing. And then, you know, that's it. Like there's like a line that says enter the green line here. Like there's not even a weather, you know, it's not even a bus, it's not even a nice bus stop. It's just like, uh, you know, a piece of pavement um, or an expansive pavement or something like that. And, um, but yeah, sort of as, as you described it. So what ends up happening sort of, at least this, the way the story has has been, we've pieced it together is that in, you know, I think it's 2006, 2007, there is a lawsuit uh, that the MBTA sort of resolves with BCIL. It's basically like uh, a disability group. And so they're like, we're going to commit to ADA improvements all throughout the station, all throughout the system, excuse me. And sort of we'll honor that as we go forward with the Green Line. Although if you read the sort of 
the text of the agreement, there's no mention of the Green Line in it. It's sort of like there are specific things mentioned, like downtown crossing, you know, like there are specific stations mentioned. Um, and, and I think that it's it's not controversial to say like stations should be ADA accessible, like that that's a good thing. Um, but that there are different ways to do that, right? So, so you can build ramps and like that the stations that were going to be built in the conceptual design that costs, you know, $500,000 a piece had ramps. Like they were going to be, you know, satisfy all of the ADA requirements, but then they became more and more elaborate. And I think one of the the other things that I think is, is worth sort of emphasizing is that the way that the budget ends up breaking down on, uh, on green line is that like the professional services. So like the costs that your consultants end up sort of getting is like, you know, 25, 30% of the total budget and is actually the biggest line item of the whole project. And so basically by having your consultants like go back and restudy everything or go back and redesign things, like you're just adding billable hours to them. And like, they're not going to say no, if you're like, can you study this idea? Or can you like maybe redesign this thing? And obviously like in a complicated project, like you're going to have to do some of that anyhow. But in the in, in in this specific instance, they basically went from very austere Spartan stations to very elaborate stations. And then they've gone back to the sort of more austere. So there's been it's like a lot of design work. And like even the engineering uh, to get the project along went through like multiple consultants, like redoing things a couple different times. Um, so just like a lot of, you know, white collar hours were burned on this project. <laughs> and I mean, the, the station thing is interesting, right? Because whenever you talk about like the quote unquote cost of something, right? Yes. One thing is like, like the unit prices, right? Like, are we paying an unreasonable amount for, you know, bricks or for a construction worker's time? Uh, but then the other is just like, what are we buying? Right. Right. And, you know, one of the things you see here is it, it just, it sort of depends like whose problems you're trying to solve, right? And and for what, right? If, you, if you're trying to move people, you know, then like, yeah, you have to build the tracks, right? And there's a certain amount of cost assigned with that. And, you know, of course, like things should be ADA accessible, so you need ramps. Uh, but they evolve to like, okay, there's going to be freestanding buildings. They're going to be on a different level. So then you're going to need lots of elevators, mm -hmm. which, you know, you do. And like, there was like a break room. Yeah, they're personnel, personnel rooms, yeah. <laughs> for, for the crew and stuff like that. Then it's like, well, okay. So it's like, well, why would you ever say no to stuff like that, right? And then the, then the community started stuff but beside the station, right? Like there was a bike path, I think I remember. Yes, right. There's, there's a, com a community path was sort of added in sort of after there's a federal funding grant agreement with the FTA. And once that's agreed to, like those are the specs of the project. And then the, after that was agreed to, they added this piece on. So the thing is like a big issue that comes up is you don't want the project scope to sort of like increase once it's been set. Like that's really bad for, you know, cost containment as, you know, you can imagine. And so this is one area that sort of we honed in on that just sort of, yeah, it just required additional design work and additional thinking. And there's like a viaduct involved that had to get like redesigned a couple of times. But then the, 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 the happy part of this story is that it seems to have reached a point where I feel like projects in the United States often don't reach, which is like, first somebody said, no, you can't spend that much money. Yeah. But then they didn't like throw the whole thing in the trash can. They like actually went back and came up with a cheaper plan. 
right? In, instead of instead of everyone just freaking out. Yes. Um, and so, how, like, how did that come together to to like put their foot down, but then get it reworked? Right. So as you go along in a project, like there is regular reporting on your costs and you know design work and all that stuff, and so it just it kept being that the like the schedule was being delayed and the costs were increasing. And so the project went from that, you know, 1.992 billion dollar estimate to, you know, 2.3 billion to 2.7 billion to then it was like 3 billion dollars. And you know, many people I spoke to were like I don't think it ever would have gotten there, but that's just like what the trend line was at that, you know, point in time and sort of the new governor Governor Baker was just like, come on, like we cannot, we can't really do this. And there are some other things going on in Boston around this time. Like he comes into office in 2015. There's like a big winter storm that like paralyzes the T. Very embarrassing. The director of the MBTA, you know, resigns in the middle of this. Um, and so it's just like, they're like, where are our resources going? Like, what's the state of good repair here? Like, what's going on with the MBTA? And then like, why is the biggest, you know, sort of cost this project that's going nowhere and only getting bigger. Um, so it's just like there was a 360 evaluation of everything. And they like changed uh, some of the governance at the MBTA. They created a, a new board to oversee some stuff. And the, basically the people in charge of that board sort of like looked at the project and just like, we know that we can do better than what we've done. And like some of the people on the board have like a lot of experience in in, in this world. And they're just like, let's take a shot and say, can we sort of push forward if we don't spend any essentially additional money? They did have to raise some additional money uh, to get this done. So I don't want to pretend that they didn't, but it's, you know, the final budget is around $2.3 billion, which is actually pretty much in line with that 1.992 number because that included some financing costs. Uh, I mean, it, that does not include the financing costs, mm-hmm. I should say. And I mean, what, what's striking about this, part of it is just, so this is not a tunnel. Right. This is like no. A, there's no tunnel. There's no tunnel. What is, is it like in the old freight rail track? Is that so it's in the commuter rail track. So right. I mean, there there is some viaduct involved. Like there is some elevation, um, right. but it's all. So it, the thing that so I think if we take a step back from Greenland, which is like yeah. uh, we don't talk too much about, but it's it's it parallels existing commuter rail, which mm-hmm. I think is insane. Um, like just make one <laughs> good thing. And then people in Somerville and came, you know, like just put a stop at, at Tufts or, you know, whatever, put a stop at, at Somerville, electrify the, the fleet. And like, you don't need to build a parallel light rail to an existing commuter rail. Like the the idea of doing that is, I think, quite bizarre. Um, I don't, you know, want to get should too we, salty we, about let's, it. Let's, let's take a break and rant and rave about commuter rail. <laughs> yeah. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year 
at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that that Israel should be able to participate Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. So I was, this was a while ago because I haven't done stuff because of Corona, but my, sure. my kid loves, uh, he, he loved this double decker tourist bus we went on, um, when we were in Spain. So mm-hmm. we have those in DC and like they're for tourists, not for people who live here, but I, I took him on one and there was some, uh, German tourists sitting near us and our bus was idled, uh, near the L'Enfant Plaza, um, metro station um and there was like a train just stopped there uh not going anywhere and it was a, a virginia railroad express train which is our commuter rail um and one of them was saying oh what's that and i i was like i was i was ashamed uh because it, in germany <laughs> they, they don't have commuter rail as we understand it really which is like in america it, it's this idea of well so you run trains from the suburbs into the city and they'll be like really expensive. And then they'll be, they'll be so expensive that then you analyze it and you're like, well, should we build another stop here in a poor neighborhood? And the answer will be, well, no, the low income people won't, won't ride it because it costs so much. So we'll just not give them any service at all. And then you get things because we have this in DC too, Mm -hmm. where because the train tracks are already there, Right. It's like convenient to build more train tracks adjacent to them. Right. But now you're building the red line parallel to trains that you already have. Yeah. But it's cheaper. <laughs> I mean, it's cheaper to ride, but it's, it can't possibly be cheaper for the government to be double building train tracks. So my, my understanding of the the ins- of what happened in Boston is that so when they started looking at Green Line in 2004, 2005, the idea of sort of electrifying the commuter rail was a no-go. Um, and, and the reason why you have to electrify it is that the diesel trains, it takes too long for them to turn them around to run them more than like twice an hour or something, or maybe four times an hour. And so Green Line, I believe the headways are going to be about si- every six minutes. So if you have 10 trains an hour, right? Like the, the math doesn't work out on, on the existing commuter rail. But right, like the the answer seems you know pretty obvious. That's like, oh, well, then like let's just run this more frequent train farther north. 
um, rather than sort of having to widen this existing trench, which like it dates back to like the 1830s or something. You know, it's like it's it's old and like there are some valid, you know, environmental concerns in the corridor because of like their illegal fallouts from houses that were built in the 18 whatevers. And there were significant drainage issues that came up in expanding the trench and doing the work for Green Line. And if you sort of just kept the trench exactly as it, as it was and, you know, just electrified the existing existing rail, you know, maybe you avoid some of those headaches. But yeah, I mean, to your point about the divide between commuter rail and sort of subways, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty mind-boggling. Um, and like, there are pretty easy ways, it seems, to sort of like marry the two, the, the, the two technologies. Right. And so, I mean, by, by uh, electrify, right, means it's like you, you string those poles. Yes. Right. And so then you could, you can run electric trains, uh, on them. They accelerate faster. Uh, you can just make them go backwards instead yep. of elaborate turnarounds uh but it's like in every american city i'm familiar with there's like completely separate bureaucracies yep so like in the bay area they're extending bart to san jose right but there's already a commuter train that goes from san francisco to san Mm -hmm. jose and so you ask people there it's like well why do you want this bart extension and they'll say well it's because the caltrain's no good right and they like have all these grievances with it which are legitimate but instead of making it better instead of making the the train you already have better you're building this entirely parallel set yes of infrastructure right where if you ignore it you could say like oh well actually this project is more affordable than you might think but the only reason it's affordable is that the whole right of way is already there yeah, and exactly. it's, it's strange to spend billions of dollars to build train tracks where you already have train tracks. Yeah, totally. I, I think you know, with Green Line, like you know, I sort of plunged into it, and we're like, you know, looking at. It. And then I think maybe we're in reading the alternative analysis. It just mentioned the idea of the commuter rail thing, and it was like a light bulb. Like, yeah, why would you build a parallel technology to existing commuter rail? Like, that's a clearly a stupid idea and um uh you know they went through the explanation in in the analysis and you know it passes muster like i I get it as an argument um but i think right if you just sort of think a little bit longer and say okay like how do we just fix this so that we can use this existing right of way we can sort of improve sort of everyone's trips by doing this like that's the the big thing and to what you're saying about electrification yeah you can the the trains accelerate and deaccelerate you know faster so you can stop more more uh, frequently, and you can turn them around more quickly. Apparently, and obviously they're electric rather than diesel, which is like also a big, yes. like a big environmental benefit uh, on top of that, which you know is is worth stating. So you know, there's this like federal infrastructure bill coming. Um, it's got a lot of money mm-hmm. for for transit, and I mean, I think that's good. Like it's it's good to have transit. It takes money. But I kind of feel like reading between the lines, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I feel like reading between the lines of a lot of this stuff, like mm-hmm. the planning gets done in weird ways because it's not really, it's like it's someone else's money. Yeah. Right? Like like the name of the game is like, can we get a federal grant for this? Otherwise it doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. Not like here's our budget, like how much can we do with that money? Right. No, no, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I think one of the things I was alluding to earlier is that, you know, if 
cities or you know transit agencies, however, whatever unit we want to talk about, like had sort of you know a medium term and a long term plan on okay, like this is the next hundred miles of of transit that we want to build. Like if that if that process sort of happened in, on a regular basis and like they worked through like the environmental impact on some of those things, um, sort of independent of okay, can I get you know, an FTA grant for, for X, Y, or Z, you know, I think that that would, it would just change the, you know, and like Los Angeles is sort of like in that direction, Seattle sort of in that direction. But like, if, if you were to talk to people at the MTA and say, okay, you built phase one on the second enemy subway, what's next? They'd be like phase two. And then it's like, okay, well, is there anything beyond second Avenue subway projects? And it's like, well, it's like, you know, there's East Side Axe. I mean, there are some things, but like, not really. Like, there's no, there aren't really, there isn't like a plan of like, okay, well, what should the future of New York look like with mass transit? Like, should we build a subway on Utica, down Utica Avenue? Like, you know, like those types of things are all still kind of like people at the agency. Yes, they know about that stuff and are aware, but it's not sort of official like doctrine. Like, this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that seems like a problem. Right. That, that you don't have sort of broad visions. And then how, I mean, how does the federal grant work? Like, is it just, right. is there, is there a technical evaluation? Is it just like, what does the secretary want to do? Like, how, how, how do you get this money? Right. So my understanding, so there's a, a program called New Starts. It's like C5309 or something like that. And, um, agencies put forward projects with budgets and, you know, you have to get through a certain amount of engineering and design and so on and so forth. And then the federal government uh, will agree to fund at a certain percentage. And like when the program sort of first starts, and I think it's in the 90s, like Utah got like 80% matches, 100% matches, you know, like it basically paid for a front runner and like all these commuter rail and, and light rail projects in Utah. But then as more cities are like, oh, like we can apply for these. And they have sort of scaled back the contributions. And so like Second Avenue Subway, I think it's like a 25% match. Um, but the, the the way it happens, right, is sort of you have to go through sort of the environmental review process, right? So you have to do this alternative analysis to choose your preferred alternative, right? So you look at all the different options for Green Line. And so you look at like, what does a bus version of this look like? What does a commuter rail version of this look like? And then you decide what your preferred alternative is. And then you sort of do some engineering and, you know, preliminary engineering and some design work, some cost estimating, and you go through environmental review, right? Like, what impact is this going to have on, you know, the wetlands or historical buildings or, you know, all these things that you have to to cross off your list. And if you sort of dot all those I's and and cross all those T's, you submit your your package and they they make a a decision on, on whether or not they'll approve it. Now, that's the broad track that you have to follow. But my understanding is that in the George W. Bush years, there was some technical analysis that was done by the FTA to say, okay, like this project is like not up to snuff. This one is cost benefit, that kind of thing. And then in the Obama years and into the Trump years, my understanding is that basically if a local, if a, a transit agency can show that they have a local match for the project and they've everything else looks good, the federal government will approve the project. And like that maybe explains sort of the spate of like streetcar projects and of, you know, maybe dubious merit uh, that has sort of emerged in the last, you know, 10 years. I'm trying to be somewhat diplomatic here. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, well, I'm going to be undiplomatic because right. it's a big concern that I have with the Democrats back in office because the last time the Democrats won a presidential election and did a stimulus bill and had transit funding, they built all these shitty streetcar projects. And it doesn't seem sure. it doesn't seem great, right? So to step back, right? If you live in Washington, D.C., I think uh, Cincinnati right. has one of these, Kansas yep. City. Kansas City. Um, there was this fad for putting train tracks in the middle of roads that also have cars on them, exactly where a bus would run, or many times where a bus does run. And then you run a train that's just the same as a bus, except it can't go around Traffic. a parked car. Right. <laughs> and... It's really weird. I mean, you got on on blogs, those of us who used to blog, there would be like these like just like vicious, endless debates about this, about whether there was some like magical benefit. And like I'm not against trains, right? But it's like a real train <laughs> doesn't get stuck in traffic. Like that's the point. Right. No, I, I, I'm I'm with you on this. I like there. So like Toronto has like a very strong sort of like streetcar culture. And, and like it's very polarizing to argue streetcar versus subway and like berlin also has like vicious debates about and like there was this slow movement thing um and like gabe klein who is the you know the the head of the dc department of transportation was like very interested in like just slow things down like that's really good and it brings back <laughs> street life and like i've been on the bus that parallels the streetcar in dc because i was like why on earth would i get on the streetcar and it was stuck like in traffic and kansas city is extending their streetcar they got some money to do that this incident and like they've all been horrific disasters in terms of like missing ridership estimates. You know, you don't pay for them initially. Like they're they're free. And then like so like the ridership looks maybe okay, but still not what was estimated. And then it's like then they start charging money maybe and then you know no one's getting on these things. So they they're just not reliable. Um and like that's the name of the game with transportation, right? It's like if something is reliable, people will use it. If it's not reliable, people probably won't use it. And I think that's where you want to focus your money, right? Is that like if you can pay to run a subway every like five minutes rather than every 10 minutes, like that seemed that's worthwhile um and the same goes with the bus by the way right like a bus that can run every five minutes is gonna you know have most likely better ridership than a bus that runs every you know 10 or 15 minutes i mean pre- assuming it's like cited somewhat appropriately um, right no but, no yeah, but i mean yeah. that's that's exactly right though it's that it's I, I don't quite know how to put it right but it's like they got into all this idea that like like all, all kinds of stuff other than making the transportation more convenient Right. was going to be important. But actually, I mean, and sometimes people will do these like takes on the internet or they'll be like, it's time to like rebrand the bus or something. Yeah, yeah. But if you look at bus lines in America, right? Like when buses go from dense neighborhoods to yes. destinations right. that a lot of people want to go and when they run frequently, like a lot of people ride the bus. There's yes. no, there's like no need for like special magic but you could you could just like run them more frequently on places where people actually live and and so with dc right they they built the streetcar on what was already a very popular bus route but it's stuck in traffic a lot so like had you made like a bus lane like that would have been really nice for people but it would have annoyed drivers yeah so instead they did this much more expensive option that doesn't accomplish anything right and it probably annoys drivers 
<laughs> not equally, maybe, but it probably still is quite annoying. It annoys bicyclists because because you'll like fall off and die if you hit the tracks wrong. So you know, Alan and I worked on a bus network redesign, and we had a meeting with some fancy people. Um, I can't say exactly who. And one of the things they said was like, "Yeah, how do you get the bus to speed up?" And I was just kind of like, "You know, buses can go." pretty they can they can move quickly if like they are unimpeded and it was just like yeah, yeah yeah but like what is like a technological solution to this and it's like flying bus i mean i don't know build a viaduct <laughs> and uh sure like maybe there is some bus zapping technology that will exist in the future but like the existing technology is perfectly good the the problem is just like how we allocate space on the road and then you know what are the rules and stuff like that that's why i study transport right it's like you don't actually need to be smart at all to to understand how to like make things better <laughs> well but you know so people ask me they're like you know because they know i i like to i like to write about this it's like well what like what what should we do you know right. to improve transit in, right. in in the jobs plan or, or something like that and i i feel like you know, they really have to try to bring back technical analysis of sure. the cost per per right now. So I will say, right, I, I as I recall the Bush era disputes, mm-hmm. it's that they were looking like purely at like decongestion of highways, right? That was one of the things, yes. And so so urbanists didn't like that. Because that sort of promotes run a train through a highway median, have park and ride stations, which is not good like urbanism, right? Right. Or really good transit. Like, you know, like those routes in DC that go to the Southwest Falls Church or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Good luck finding that that station. No, I mean it it's true. And it's true. It's like that that sucks, right? And yeah. like, but I think what you what you want to do is say, well, you should build projects that will attract high ridership. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah. That's uncontroversial. <laughs> but I mean, it is controversial. That's what's <laughs> right. Well, I, I think that's the thing. Right? I think when you start to talk about this stuff, it's all like extremely logical and just like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, if you remove obstructions from a bus, it will run more reliably. If you connect dense corridors, people will ride transit, especially if there's like congestion on the roadway above or adjacent or however you want to you know, think about it. And then like where things fall apart is like, okay, well, to do that, I then need to do this other thing. And like that other thing I don't want to do. And that's like take parking away from someone or, uh, you know, spend a bunch of money on a subway tunnel. And I think part of the thing with the subway story, right, is we get into that 3D chess of, okay, let's try to anticipate all of the sort of complaints that we're going to receive about like, okay, this is disruptive, there's smoke, there, you know, from the blasting, that kind of stuff. And then like, we're going to build a station like 8 million feet below ground. No one will even know that we're digging it. But it's just like, it's going to take 10 extra years and cost, you know, three extra billion dollars to do. We're in a, in like a very political assessment of transportation projects rather than like, finding more of a balance, right? I think the politics are inevitable. Like you can't get rid of it, but maybe it needs to tilt a little bit differently. And, and I think that's what we're going to see with a lot of infrastructure stuff. Like I, I'm, I don't know, I'm sure you've been reading all the high-speed rail stuff and like the naysayers, the arguments I find mystifying about like, let's just like start slow and like build some stuff. Like not high-speed rail though. Like we don't want to go that far. Like let's just like make what we have already a bit better rather than sort of just like if we're going to invest a bunch of money, like let's get the best technology we can. Let's like 
build the super fast connection between like the cities that makes sense. And like, then maybe after that, we can, you know, like continue building stuff and like go slow or whatever. But like, let's really like hammer home on like Boston, New York, DC, LA, uh, San Francisco, you know, Chicago and whatever point you want to connect it with, you know, Dallas, Houston, you know, okay. Um, like I, I, I'm a little, uh, a little confused when I read sort of the like, you know, we shouldn't like dream big on on high speed rail. I find it a bit strange. Actually, I don't know. Maybe your point of view is the opposite of this. Well, I mean, you know, I think there's different questions of scale, right? But I mean, I I, I think that like what what sort of ties us all together is that you want to have a um a sort of comprehensive plan, yes, and then like a reason why that's your plan, right? Not just kind of like, well, what's the easiest thing you oh, could yeah, possibly yeah, yeah. Right. do. And then just go do it. Or like, what do we happen to have some money for right now? Right. Right. You you want to have some kind of theory of like, what would people ride? And then you can like assess, okay, what are like all the routes that meet that criteria? Yes. And then we can investigate the engineering properties of all of that. Right. And then it's like, yeah, then you have to see like, what can you get funding for? What's the schedule? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it seems very backwards to be like, I mean, it's just back to this Boston thing. Right. So it's the, the big dig. It was basically, they, they created this like highway tunnel under yeah. part of the city. I don't know, for weird reasons that like triggered the opportunity to like grab some more funding for mass transit. But then it seems like everything that happened after that was driven by like, like what's like the lowest impact way we could spend that money, right? Or like like least disruptive, right? Like least discomforting to anybody. So then it's like, well, what if we build it where there's already train tracks? <laughs> but like, why would you do that? Well, right. I mean, so that's like the theory of like a lot of modern American transit projects is like you're basically taking existing rights of way and adding stuff or improving them or whatever, rather than sort of cutting. And, you know, I use that word intentionally cutting through new rights of way because, yeah, you don't want to be disruptive and you don't want to discomfort. And uh, I think, you know, that type of thinking, it, yeah, it's very defensive from the get-go and is very mindful of, okay, yeah, I don't want to have uh, a needless political fight on my hands. Right. Because, like, I mean, that is invariably what happens. I mean, you know, I, I think when we talked last about this, you had the expression, there's no such thing as a shovel-ready project. There is such a thing as a lawsuit-ready project. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, that people want to avoid that. No, no, no. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's, I, I mean, and I, I do think that that is one good thing about this round of federal initiative from, from the Biden administration is I do think they're clearer on the fact that, like, People who are out of work right now because the restaurants they used to be at closed in the pandemic, like you're not going to get them a job like next month right. building the transportation system of the future. Like we need to help people who are out of work and we also need to build the transportation system of the future. But right. like those are different questions, I think, fundamentally. Right. And like you need to make you need to have a good planning process. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Well, I would say I think, you know, with all public policy, right, like you don't just like do a policy to sort of see what will happen. Like you have goals that you're like working either, you know, working backwards from, from the planning perspective and working towards in like real world time. I think as you're saying with like a lot of transportation projects, it feels like what can we do? And like, 
who knows what it's going to really achieve and if it is fitting with whatever goals um, that we have. That's always been, I think, with congestion pricing or other sort of interventions, like that's, you got to start with, okay, what are we looking to achieve? Is it about, you know, getting X amount of people out of cars? Is it about moving X amount of people to transit? Is it about reducing greenhouse gas emissions by whatever or reducing, you know, collisions and crashes? You know, like what is the thing or the suite of things we want to optimize? Before I let you go, um, you know, I, I should ask, like, what's 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 next for Transit Cost Project? What uh, what should what should fans be looking forward to? Uh, so we are in the midst of of ra- uh, well, we're going to start writing up our next three cases, which are going to be New York, Istanbul, and a couple Italian cities, uh, northern Italian primarily. And you know, the 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 goal there is to just sort of like continue learning about you know what works well, what does not work well, where are costs sort of increasing, where can you, you know, find cost savings, just like, what can we learn to sort of better design and, you know, govern these projects going forward so that here in the States, we can take advantage of, you know, the the Biden largesse and, you know, build the infrastructure we need, you know, for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years or whatever. So yeah, that, that's what you, you have to look forward to. All right, fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Eric Goldman uh, from Marin Institute. Um, thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer, Eric Janakis, uh, and The Weeds will be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.